I've heard more grumbling than usual this year about the ubiquitous Christmas carols in stores and malls and pretty much everywhere. A psychologist in London claims that carols actually make us spend more money. Labor unions in the Czech Republic have demanded that stores stop playing Christmas carols incessantly or pay compensation for causing emotional trauma to sales clerks. I confess I love Christmas carols, and after Thanksgiving, I'm usually listening to the rather extensive Christmas carol playlist on my iPod whenever I'm in the car. One carol I usually skip, however, is The Twelve Days of Christmas, the one that begins with a partridge in a pear tree on the first day and then goes on for 11 more days. And I learned I'm not alone. The 12 Days of Christmas appeared in the Huffington Post list of the 10 most annoying Christmas songs of all time. Although way behind, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, which was the number one most annoying carol. It's hard to argue with that. That's one carol that's not on my iPod playlist. Halford Lucock wrote a generation ago for the Christian century, and he wrote that the 12 days of Christmas is about a list of riotously inappropriate and ludicrous gifts. Two turtle doves, three French hens, six geese a-laying, eight maids a-milking, 12 drummers drumming. A partridge in a pear tree? What on earth do you do with that? Is it a decoration? A pet? An entree? <laughs> Lukacs said the impracticality is precisely the beauty of it. The old song actually contains a profound philosophy. It celebrates the high wisdom of completely inappropriate and largely useless gifts. We've been singing about a partridge in a pear tree for several hundred years, he writes. Would we have been singing about a floor mop? His advice advice is that you should give your true love an impractical gift. Give grandma perfume, buy her lipstick or dancing slippers, and now I confess that I get a little uncomfortable with this, having given some very practical gifts in my life, including uh, the pot that I gave one of my daughters this Christmas. She's not here tonight, so I'm not spoiling a surprise. But she asked for it, and I'm just grateful that these gifts have been graciously received over the years. The best gifts of love, Lukacs wrote, are those which show a lovely lack of common sense. And there's precedent for this. The first Christmas gift was highly inappropriate and impractical. A baby, born in a stable. Who wanted that? What people wanted was a Messiah who would make things right in the world, defeat God's enemies, establish a new order of things based on real power, And so when the gift was given, nobody much noticed. The town itself, Bethlehem, David's town, didn't notice. The innkeeper himself didn't see anything except a weary couple, the young woman heavily pregnant. God's gift of love was not exactly what people wanted at the time, and it's not exactly what they want now. We're still hoping for a God who will put things right in the world. There's civil war in South Sudan. North Korea may be producing fuel for a nuclear reactor. 
Israeli soldiers are shelling Gaza. There's a brutal conflict going on between Christlims and Muslims in the Central African Republic. And what a relief that Congress is not in session, so we get a break from the polarization and blame that has become politics as usual. And on and on. It's a tough time in our world. We want a real God, a powerful God who confirms our own ideas and will finish off our opponents who we assume are God's opponents as well. But God comes quietly, intimately, personally, to change the world, to bring in the kingdom by changing, softening, and compelling human hearts. A friend of mine recently became a grandmother for the first time, and in November she visited the new baby in Southern California for a weekend. She and her husband stayed with the baby's parents, their son and his wife, and the wife's mother was there as well. My friend said that basically the whole weekend was spent with five adults sitting around the baby, watching every wriggle, listening to every squeak, ooing and aahing, and falling in love with her. Babies have a way of melting human hearts. The unique Christian idea is that the very essence of God is not what we expect, power and majesty and awesomeness, but vulnerable love. The unique Christian idea is that there is absolute truth in the newborn baby lying in the manger. Truth about God and truth about you and me. Someone has put it this way, Mary held in her arms the God of love that we might hold in our hearts the love of God. That is the gift we are given tonight. As Langdon Gilkey puts it, to be enabled to love is the greatest gift that can be given to us. That is what church is for, by the way, to enable us to love. Sometimes we forget that and think that church is about converting people or growing membership roles and budgets, winning theological arguments, maintaining moral standards. People can think that a church is sort of like Santa Claus, and I mean that in the worst way. The Santa Claus that says he's making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. By the way, that song would not make it onto my playlist either. Just because people get that picture of Santa Claus mixed up with their picture of God. And then church suddenly isn't about love anymore. It's about following rules and believing the right things and excluding the people who don't believe the right things and feeling guilty and being afraid. When in fact, church is supposed to be the way you and I, out of our busy and hurried and overcommitted and exhausting lives, are enabled to love are given the most precious gift of all, the opportunity to love, to pour something of the God of love we have received back into the world that so desperately needs it. The greatest gift of all is to be enabled to love. Pastor and author Kathy Bostrom wrote an Advent meditation a few years ago about a stay in the hospital, recovering from major surgery in mid December. She remembers that the hospital is not a haven 
of quiet peace and rest. She had a roommate who smoked in the bathroom and turned the TV on at all hours of the night. Across the hall, an elderly woman cried out in pain about every three minutes, and a code blue would send emergency personnel and, and carts racing down the halls at all hours of the night. Kathy tells her story this way. One night as I lay in my hospital bed, hooked up to so many machines I couldn't even move without help, and close to tears from the pain and frustration, I heard a faint sound. Amidst the cries of pain, blaring TVs and beeping monitors, I swore I heard a different type of sound altogether, a soft, sweet, gentle song. Then it was gone. Was I imagining things? Was that entirely possible with all and that was entirely possible with all the medications coursing through my veins? A few days later, still awake and trying to block out the sounds of the woman wailing across the hall and the loud, angry voice of my roommate swearing on the telephone, I heard the strange, beautiful sound again. Could it possibly be? No, I must be hearing things, I thought. When the nurse came back to check my vitals, I asked her, was it me, or was there indeed a very different sound breaking through the harshness of that place? Oh, she said, as she wrapped the blood pressure cuff around my bruised arm, it's a tradition here. Every time a baby is born in the nursery, They play Brahms' lullaby on the loudspeakers. A lullaby on the loudspeakers, floating through the harshness of those halls. A lullaby. And right then, for the first time since I'd come through the emergency room of that hospital, I smiled, albeit weakly. I felt hopeful. I felt peace. A lullaby on the loudspeakers. A baby is born. During the remaining time I spent in the hospital, I listened for the sounds of that lullaby. Amidst the horrible sounds of pain and misery that surrounded me, I strained to hear the sound of hope, of life, of new beginnings. A lullaby on the loudspeakers. A child is born. And I thought of another lullaby which broke into the sounds of the night nearly 2,000 years ago, And in my heart I heard the whisper of angels' wings. Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Do not be afraid, for over the sounds of people weeping and IVs beeping and bombs bursting, Over the cries of pain and suffering and sorrow, there is a heavenly lullaby. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news, which is for all people. There is good news. God is with us in the worst and the best of life, in the mess and the confusion, in the complexity and beauty and sadness. God is in the midst of us, loving us unconditionally and giving us the freedom to love or not, which is the only way. 
that love truly is love. There is good news. This vulnerable love is stronger than anything else our world can offer in security, in prestige, in striving. This kind of love calls us into relationships across differences, across divides, across enmity, and into communities like this, where we are reminded that we are never alone, where love heals and renews us, where we learn to find a way wherever we are on life's path. There is good news. God wants your heart. God wants our love. And God's strategy to accomplish this ambitious agenda in our lives is to come to us with a gift. The gift of God's own eternal, unconditional love given in a child. Theologian Karl Barth said somewhere that in the final analysis, when it comes to the gospel, that is, God's grace in Jesus Christ, we are all like children on Christmas morning, surrounded by wonderful and generous gifts. The good news, which is for all of us, for the whole world, and for each one of us, is that the gift has been given. God's love has been born among us. May God's love be born again this night in your heart and in mine. Amen and Merry Christmas.